Hey folks, we'll be getting into Season 3 over the next several weeks, but for now we wanted to invite you into a conversation we had with our friend Rob Banta, who recently started a podcast called The Commuter Clause that shines a light on the aviation industry and gives listeners a better understanding of the passion and dedication that goes into being a pilot. So before we dive deep into existentialism and meaning-making for our new series of Black Market Therapy, please enjoy this conversation with Rob Banta, and make sure to look up The Commuter Clause wherever you get your podcasts. Rob, if you end up being a color guy on your show, you should call yourself Rob Banter. Rob Banter. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Like if you end up being like the pizzazz dude. Just a little bit of like light jazz in the background too. <laughs> How you didn't become a sportscaster is beyond me. Well, it's actually, that's what uh, my parents would make fun of me when I was growing up because I would, I was like, I mean, I was addicted to sports. I still am. My fiance will say the same thing, but yeah. I would always be like, you know, you watching the Bruins or something like that. I'd be like, what the hell? That's icing. And my parents would be like, how did you know that? It's like, I, I mean, I, I just, literally, this is half of my life. I watch sports or I go to school. That's basically it. But uh, yeah, I really thought about it for a long time. But flying was kind of the first passion for me. So You have the right voice for both. The PA voice. Yeah. I've been told a <laughs> lot, voice. actually. I'm really glad on the episode that you sent us that you mentioned the ATC voice. Yeah. Because I was thinking the entire time, I was like, I really want to like try to bring that up to see if like if you have one that's different from your speaking voice. But it feels like one of those things like when people yell "Freebird" at us, like just like oh, okay, like it's not offensive, but it's like grow up. Dude. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when I first started flying, I flew up a private jet when I was in, in college, and the one of the captains I flew with, he would always. I flew with him more than there was only two people, so I flew with him more than the other guy. And eventually, like halfway through the year, he was like, "Why do you whisper into the radio?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" He was like, "Go back and listen, because there's a there's a website called Live ATC, and you could go back and listen to recordings." Mm. So I went back, uh. and it was like, "Lafayette Ground, one poppy uniform, ready to taxi with Bravo." And I was like, "Oh my God, I'm whispering!" Like, and it was subconscious <laughs> too. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I I it's been like literally a conscious effort to try to sound the same way, but uh Colleen, my fiance, went with me on a trip like three weeks ago. I tried to make a shout out to her over the PA and she's like, I didn't even hear you because I didn't realize it was you talking. It's like ah. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting up there like palms were sweaty, like a la M and M and of course she didn't hear a thing. Like, oh, well, <laughs> Did you tell her to go back and listen to the live ATC? Oh, <laughs> thankfully, that one wasn't recorded on live ATC. But, but okay. yeah, no, I, I, every now and then I've listened to a mistake that I've made. I was like, oh, I'm just so stupid sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you guys hear yourselves in your ears up there? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, sometimes it's a little bit... It, I've got noise-canceling headphones. Um, mm. So when the noise-canceling is on, I definitely hear myself. When the noise-canceling is off, it's just kind of... It's kind of sounds like if you're doing something like this. So it's like you sort of hear yourself, but there's so much background noise. You're like, nah. Yeah. Huh. Do you guys do the voice on purpose? <laughs> the pilot voice? Yeah. Like, is that a conscious, like, something we that you kind of... got to get that out like, of the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I can say sometimes legitimately like it's done on purpose. I, you know, maybe it sounds bad, but um, at least the previous job that I had, it was a regional airline. So 
most of what I was doing was a lot of really quick legs. So you're flying five up to five, six times a day. And sometimes it's just kind of back and forth, Boston, New York or something like that. So you have to spice things up. You keep it. It's very repetitive and it, complacency is, is really kind of a dangerous game to play. So, you know, you do sometimes it's it's funny to, you know, just throw on a really deep voice. Ladies and gentlemen from the flight deck. Okay, welcome aboard this flight and just kind of you know see see if people are paying attention or you know throw a high-pitched voice in there too or talking on the radio <laughs> you throw an accent i was um, gonna ask if you've ever done accents yeah it, um i actually <laughs> probably two two plus years ago at this point i flew with a captain who like had very rarely been to boston mm. and he was like Oh, you're from around here? Where's your accent? I was like, I'm, I'm far enough outside the city. I don't have an accent. Well, while we're on the ground, you have to talk in a Boston accent. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> he was like, yeah, you're from Boston. Talk in the Boston accent. I was like, okay. So every radio call was at Boston Ground Brickyard 5794 Taxi with Bravo. <laughs> he was dying in the left seat. So it, it's like, it's things like that. You have to have fun a little bit with... Uh, you know, obviously within within rules and regulations, but it's you got to do a fun time. And I remember in training and back in college, uh, we have to stay current uh, with flying at night. So you need to do three takeoffs and landings in the preceding 90 days in order to be kind of legal to fly at night. Um, mm-hmm. So there was always one night where every instructor at the university would go out and get three landings. So it's just a group of people that all know each other, all circling around the same airport. And I mean, you hear like you hear like a quagmire, you hear Peter Griffin, you hear like a, a Bart Simpson or something like that. People are just throwing out the most random voices. And, you know, of course, then you have the the chief flight instructor. Guys, knock it off. This is a serious thing. It's like, OK, thanks, Leo. <laughs> so I have a question. Yeah. You have noise canceling headphones now. But when the yep. trope of the pilot voice was originated, I don't imagine that noise canceling headphones were much of a thing. No. And so it would have been a voice that the pilot himself wouldn't not have been able to hear himself make. Probably, yeah. So do you know where that stereotype originated? You know, the only thing I can think of is it was a lot of uh, a lot of where like airline pilots started came from people coming back from wars. World War II is a big one that you know you had a huge navy and air force that went over to to Europe and to Japan and came back and they were like, well, I, I, right out of high school I was recruited to fly and now what do I do? So you know without trying to sound like I'm enforcing a stereotype, it was kind of these you know macho guys that probably just kind of fit the same stereotype of deep voice, suave, because, you know, it's just the personality of a lot of people. Cool under pressure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it it probably comes from that. And and there have been times, especially in training, that they're like, if you're ever faced with an emergency, you want to be that calm presence that comes over the radio to reassure Mm. people. Mm -hmm. Even if things don't look too fantastic for what you're looking at, you want to make sure that everybody is not going crazy in the back because that's adding another thing that's bad for you. So right. make sure you have that voice. And so if it's like, okay, well, I've got my pilot voice that I turn on, it, it probably just kind of originated from that, from being the, <laughs> I'm the calling voice. Ignore the fire on the left engine, but I'm the calling <laughs> voice. 
That reminds me of something I was going to ask later then. So, but to whatever extent you can say, yeah. how often do emergencies or near unexpected, but like serious enough to warrant your attention happen without the passenger's knowledge? Yeah. I, so I, thankfully for me, I, I've actually, I'd really knock on wood here. Uh, I've, I've had a pretty light career when it comes to things like that probably more often than your average flying public would realize that something would pop up where you get a light, something fails. But usually what it is, is so many things in aviation are have redundancies to it. Mm-hmm. So when we lose a level of redundancy, that's when it brings information to our attention. So okay. that's kind of where we start. You know, unfortunately, due to X, Y, Z with this computer, we've, we've got to go back to New York or go back to Boston just out of an abundance of caution. A lot mm-hmm. of times that's, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're all in an age of technology and involved with even automobiles. You, you kind of have that random light that pops up and you're like, nah, what the heck is that? Um, so mm-hmm. things do happen. Things break. It's the name of the game. But um, a lot of times uh, you could go from point A to point B and we could have three lights pop on over the course of the flight and you'd have no idea that things were ever wrong. And most likely there was never really anything truly wrong. It was just a part at some point in this huge system failed, which reduced a level of redundancy. But there's no issue pressing forward towards the destination. It can get fixed where we're going or it can just get put on a list and said, hey, it's broken, but you're good to fly with with the number of items that are still installed on the airplane. That's good to know. Because, I mean, honestly, like, there have been some times I'm not the most comfortable flyer. Like, I love planes and I love the concept of flying. Like, it excites me deeply. But then I get to the airport and I'm like, no, I actually hate this so much. I'm so afraid of heights. I'm so afraid of all of this. Yeah. But the few, like, usually it's, like, pretty much fine, except for the times I've flown Spirit. (laughs) <laughs> and I've gotten on those planes and it doesn't go away. Yeah. The fear doesn't go away. And there have been some moments of turbulence, even just pretty short flights. I think I've flown to like New Jersey, like places like that, like just kind of quick little things. But there have been some episodes of like turbulence on those and just different things that I've, even sometimes with the flight attendant starts to look nervous and things like that. And yeah. I was thinking, yeah. like, is there something going on up there that we're never going to know about? Right. Right. I've been I mean, it's probably horrible to say, but most likely you're not going to know about it unless it's something more on the serious side. Again, that's few and far between. There's reasons why almost every issue is a newsworthy item because it happens so infrequently. Mm. But well, before we get too deep into fear mongering here, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned when we started talking that sports and aviation were your earliest passions. Aviation more yeah. so, obviously. And you said in uh, in, in your podcast, uh, you were asking your guest about when he got the bug, you know. And so uh, when was that for you and what do you remember feeling and experiencing? Yeah, actually, it's a great question. um, My dad was the one that got me into it uh, at a really, really young age. So young, in fact, that my first toy that I was apparently infatuated with was this Lego, Lego airplane. And I would play with that nonstop. But my dad flew uh, small airplanes when I was growing up. And uh, he would take me flying occasionally, a few times during the summer. And it was just one of those things I kept coming back. I really loved it. My brother was, he enjoyed it, but he really couldn't care less. It was just kind of a, oh, sweet, dad wants to take me flying. But for me, it was like, oh my gosh, when, we can, when can we go back? When can we go back? And um, he was like, when you get old enough, if you want to take lessons, you can take lessons. 
And uh, thankfully for me, the ability was to uh, work at the airport and I got kind of a flying credit mm. for when I was able to, you know, go flying by myself. So I couldn't, it wasn't like I was getting paid, but I got $10 an hour in flying credit. And so I could exchange that for, for flying. So it made it really affordable. And uh, yeah, so technically I caught the bug from a really young age, but once I started taking lessons, it was like, I, I have to do this. Not necessarily for a job, but I need to keep keep flying because it's just it's an unbelievable experience and yeah i'd really I'd, i haven't looked back so were you one of those cases who were you know you were flying technically before you were driving in some ways oh yeah yep because yeah i remember you like when we were growing up like you would go off on the weekends you like, yeah. oh, we're gonna go fly we were all like what the hell <laughs> yeah it's like you can just do that yeah it was, it it def- was cool as hell i i started flying it was in 2009 so i would have been 14 going on 15? No, I'm sorry, 15. So it took a full two, a year and a half to two years before I got my own, before I was even able to drive myself to the airport, which is just, I mean, it's the funniest thing. I guess there's less less people in the air for me to get in the way of than on the yeah. on the ground. But I, it was it's always the funniest thing. But yeah, I, I flew for a while. I got my driver's license before my, my pilot's license, but I was flying airplanes by myself um, before I actually was able to uh, drive. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. What do you remember, if there was anything, um, what do you remember was an obstacle? Something that you might say like, well, maybe I won't reach this goal of mine. Was there anything that seemed to inhibit you at all? Yeah. Um, so early, early in the flying days, and eventually I became an instructor and always would kind of teach this lesson to my students if they were always, if they ever got to the point that it was difficult for them. Um, the first year that I flew, it felt like every lesson I was learning something. I was making leaps and bounds every single time I went out and flew. And it really grew my confidence. I was a freshman in high school, so I was easily impressionable. Mm. The second year that I went out, you know, I kind of had those expectations that I'm just going to come out and be a rock star and knock this stuff out every time I come out and work towards getting my license. And the second year, I really can't say that I improved. Mm. You know, I, I remember having a conversation with my dad. I was like, I feel like I'm not, I haven't done anything this year. All I've done is spent money and I've gone flying, which is great. But like, I can't say that I'm doing anything remarkably better. Mm. Um, and it's called, you know, plateauing. And that goes across beyond just aviation Right now, I don't think that would have had the same impact. But as a sophomore in high school, it was like, I thought I was so good. I'm really not as good as I thought I was. Maybe it's not cut out for me. But uh, my dad, especially, and some of the instructors that I grew closer with, kind of tried to identify the issues that I were ha- that I was having. Um, one of which was every time I went out, I was flying with a different instructor who had their own way of teaching and their own way of doing things. And so once we identified, hey, these are like kind of the core four to five instructors that I'm comfortable with and really like flying with. If I went out and they weren't flying, I wasn't flying that day. No need in trying to introduce a brand new person, again, who teaches something completely different. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it just was what what worked for me. So that was really the first big obstacle that I came across. And I was very thankful to have the support system in place to help get me through that to really put that in the rear view. What kind of stuff causes you to plateau? Like when you're, when you're coming up, like, is it comfort with, with different skills or is it just like, I'm trying to compare it in, in a way to 
coming up like as a musician or something where you're sort of embarking on this path that could or could not lead to a career, but there's a huge amount of personal investment leading into that. But yeah, people hit these, these points where they just, they aren't going to develop past that or they're, they're not willing to put in that extra thing. And sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's just sheer logistics. Like they don't have the hours. They don't have the ability to, um, focus that much of their life at it. Like what are the things you would say in like the, in the pilot community that caused those plateaus to happen? I think at least for me, in the example that I gave before, it was just specific maneuvers for whatever reason that the kind of the group of maneuvers that we were working on the second year, which is a stall recovery where the wings on the aircraft aren't producing enough lift to keep you afloat. And just things like that were, were foreign. It wasn't something that you could kind of practice because I got to drive a golf cart around. So, you know, I kind of had driving skills and some of the basic maneuvers made sense. And that's why those were taught first. But getting into more advanced maneuvers, it was like things that you just kind of got hung up on. It was really easy to get down in the dumps on not being able to do that maneuver really well. And then you just keep trying to do it and it keeps failing. And you're like, I can't do this. And even trying to move on to something else, it's just like your mind is elsewhere. So even though the day before I could have easily done kind of the easy stuff, now it's just everything starts crumbling and falling apart. I guess the other thing is being able to have a frequency enough to be able to break through those barriers. I had some students when I was teaching before I got to the airlines that they would only show up once a month or once every other month. And we'd make really good progress within the lesson. And the next time they came in, it was like everything unraveled. And it's like, you just don't have, you know, maybe with the guitar, you know, you could learn a riff in a day and feel really confident with it. But if you don't have that muscle memory two months later, you're going to boo yourself off stage. I was like that too. I, I played the piano growing up and it's amazing how quickly those skills go away when you're, when you're out of practice, if you know, the stick-to-itiveness is really, really important, um, at least until you can kind of get that muscle memory where it just kind of comes back, even if it's not perfect after you've not done it for a while. Um, yeah. But keeping up with everything is just, that, that, that's the key to avoid plateauing or just you know, moving on with a completely different thing. You know, if, if you're struggling with that riff on the guitar, just go play something else that you're comfortable with. Get, get that confidence back up mm. and then kind yeah. of attack it where you're not in your own headspace. And especially being able to put all of that together under pressure. I know for music specifically, that's the thing that I've seen kind of separate the the men from the boys in a way where like a lot of people are really good instrumentalists or like you can get to a point where like you just, you put in the time, you put in all the passion and you, you get there. But being able to dependably come out and do it when the lights go low or do it at a dive where you're getting heckled to shit or at a huge venue where it's scary or, you know, anything in between having that repetition is where people start to fall off. Sometimes it's like, cause that's not, you don't have as much control over it. Like you, you don't have as much control over the frequency or the quality. So it's like, it's really easy to hit these, these plateaus without even knowing it and then find out like, Oh, my comfort zone is enormous. And I didn't know it. Yeah. I remember, uh, when I was in college, you came out and played out in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. The, the venue was like, a, it was kind of cool, but the act or something like that that went on before you was horrible. A magician. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's like horrible a horrible magician. You were, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Cleared yeah. the room. Walked the whole crowd. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I remember you, you came up to me afterwards and we talked and I was like, hey, you know, great job. And you were like, I didn't know how I was supposed to follow that act. Because no. not only is it just like you're trying to follow something and kind of bring a crowd back together, but like you said, it was like everybody scattered. It was like, oh, drink time. Because <laughs> yeah. there's nothing worthwhile up on the stage. And it's like, oh, yeah. introducing Matt Minigal. It's like, oh, I feel so yeah, bad. Like, who cares? <laughs> right, right. Because I wanted to leave too. It's like, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, yeah, it's weird. Like, especially touring, like you start to get that skill set I've found. Like you recognize the patterns more and more quickly where like you might not be able to win them back but you sort of can bounce back quicker you can show up the next night a little bit more excited than you might have <laughs> otherwise or, or just there's little tactics and things but it, it, it was hard in that case because being a solo person it was like oh jesus that's actually not right. the only time it's happened either following a magician and <laughs> every time it happens it's gone that way <laughs> So it sucks. Yeah, that was like, as soon as that dude walked on stage, I was just like, of course, this is the one show in this whole run that like a friend's coming out to. Like, you guys drove a couple hours, right? So like, yeah, I was thinking like, God, why this? Why this night? We've just done two weeks <laughs> to no one we know. <laughs> it could have been any one of those. It's always the way. Yeah. But this goddamn magician. <laughs> you know what? It made for it made for a more unique experience. Yeah. So I was I was even... <laughs> all the more happy to be out there to at least be like the guy that could also laugh with you instead of the solo act. who's like, yeah, Matt from yeah. Austin. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of skill sets, something I was curious about is, is there a hobby or something in your life apart from aviation that serves as a cross disciplinary thing that you feel makes you better at your trade? Better at my trade. Um, that's a good question. Or, or, or not necessarily better at it, but you know, serves as supplementary in some way supplementary i mean it, at least for me is is golf i i kind of view it as a little bit of an escape but yeah. it kind of keeps you going because i usually play with aviation aviation buddies you know you have we both have the same random tuesday off and just go play around there and at least from a, a previous comment that that matt had made like kind of honing different skills on the driving range is then so totally different from actually practicing on the on the actual course. It's like you can mm. you know go chip a whole bunch of practice golf balls at the range, and then all of a sudden you're faced with the same thing, and it's going miles past where you were trying to go. It's like, how how did I yeah. screw that up? Um, <laughs> but at least the same thing. You can make again. You can make the parallel to almost any discipline too. That, that repetition until the point where you kind of can do it in your sleep is really where you start making those, uh, those improvements. But outside of that, at least things that can apply to bettering myself, I guess the only thing I really could say is, you know, going to air shows or local airports or something like that, watching other people do it, um, gives you more of a respect for the different things that you can do in an airplane and keeps your mind open to new ideas of what you can do within aviation itself too, beyond just the monotonous of going to the airport and flying down to Florida and coming back and doing the same thing mm -hmm. again tomorrow. I mean, something that came to mind for me was that I have a crippling fear of heights. So <laughs> if I worked in the aviation field, I would need to have something cross disciplinary that was either 
a serious respite from <laughs> yeah. from the heights or something that uh you know allowed me to face the fear and kind of gave me immersion therapy or something like that right um so that it could make me better at my job you know yeah but i, I was curious what is it specifically about golf it goes back to um to college i i was a flight instructor and Kind of the cool thing towards the end of the college career is I was taking like the min credit classes because I was I was doing a master while I was doing my undergrad and the courses counted towards both. So it wasn't like I needed to load up the schedule. So I was taking very few credits. So my schedule was generally free, but the unfortunate slash fortunate side was all of my free time was then spent instructing. And so I actually just my friend actually was the one that reached out and I decided to take a golf course. Um, in college, my parents were like, oh, sweet. So you're just adding more money to already expensive schooling. I was like, oh, yeah. well, seriously, the, you know, the skill set behind doing golf, it's like if you ever get into some form of business, I guess the phrase is all big deals happen on a golf course. Yeah. It doesn't happen in a conference room. So I figured it was a decent skill to have. Not that I'm good. I cannot say that I'm good whatsoever. <laughs> Um, but the, the cool thing about that is it was Monday and Friday in the morning. And so those weren't necessarily times where I really wanted to get up at six in the morning to be at the airport for a seven thirty flight slot. Right. And I actually legitimately now had an excuse that I couldn't be there for that flight slot because the golf course or the golf, it started at like eight thirty or nine. And yeah. it was an unbelievable release because everything in my life at that time was just aviation. This, if I wasn't in class, I was instructing and if I wasn't instructing, I was probably sleeping. So mm -hmm. having that golf as an excuse, oh, can you do something on Friday? Nope, I have to golf. What? I'm taking <laughs> a golf class. And I think that's really where it started just as the, um, the cool way where I was literally on the golf course and you could look up to where the airplanes were leaving the airport and going north and to, to practice. And it's like, I'm not there, I'm here, which it felt it, not vindicating, but it was just a, a wonderful release from the day in and day out. And I looked forward to that and I kind of got off the wagon for a little bit, but once COVID came mm -hmm. back or once COVID started, the first thing that came back was like outdoor things. So I played right, yeah. at this little Bill Ricca country club that wasn't all that well maintained, but it was fun and it was cheap. And mm -hmm. uh, I started getting better. My buddy played a lot, so he, he helped me. So it was just, it's, it's a good release of completely different from aviation. Even if we talk about aviation the entire time we're out on the course, it's just, it's, yeah. it's fun to watch a ball fly a few hundred yards at a time. I imagine it's beneficial to have a thing too, right? Like, especially yeah. given the amount of just, just the sheer travel that you have to do. Yeah. Like, is it the type of thing where you can, I don't know if you do this yet or if you think about it or what, but like where you can kind of look forward to certain destinations because it might be a good course in that town or near that airport, or you might have a buddy who has some time off on that leg and you can be like kind of meet up and play around. Like, is there any of that that happens yet or will yeah. happen in the future? I, I haven't been able to execute on the plan yet, but yeah. um, one of the destinations we go to is Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic. And uh, the hotel that we stay at has a golf course. It's on the pricier side, but mm. I'd love to play. It's something, especially if you start doing cities consistently where, you know, you've been to the restaurants that you wanted to go to, you've seen the sites. Punta Cana is beautiful. The beach is awesome. But I could see, you know, eventually if you just keep going back, it's like 
it's the same palm tree next to the same sand which is awesome but throwing in that cool like I'd love to go play that golf course or um, going out to LA there's a friend from college and he's 10 minutes down the street from a, a little par three nine hole course it's like that sounds like an awesome way to spend a layover just to doing something different mm. and it is still just the the release you forget about it for a few hours not that it's a bad job to have but it's a just a cool way to think about something different yeah mm. what's it like on the road like what's the is there a community i've always kind of been curious about this like is there a community amongst the pilots or this you know staff on a plane um in general like do you kind of know people if you were to pass somebody in an airport or see like oh like this airliner's coming in like are you likely to know those people enough to kind of like give them a little wave as you go by or be friends or anything yeah so uh at least in airports it's i always give the head nod to, to other pilots or flight attendants i try to be as friendly as possible whether they give a head nod give a smile or just a cold shoulder back it doesn't bother me it is funny though at a hotel a lot of hotels have like airline contracts so you know that there's other airline folks running around and uh you can you can spot a pilot from a mile away if you see long enough it's like the dude that's in the the hawaiian shirt with jeans and the white new balances it's like you fly I can tell. I know you can. I know you fly. Um, but at least on layovers and stuff, I, usually the pilots will, will stick together. We can fly less than the flight attendants do. So usually, like if we do a long a long flight, it's one long flight and we're done. Um, flight attendants oftentimes will do the one long flight and then turn right back around and go back to Boston. Um, so it's just just me. At least right now, it's me and the captain that are are on the the overnight together. And sometimes we'll we'll do things together. Sometimes we're we're riding solo, especially if I know people in town. I'm not dragging somebody that I met 10 hours earlier to go hang out with my high school buddies. It's like, sorry, guy, I know you can figure something out on your own. But uh, there's usually almost everywhere we go, there's the, the typical pilot hangout spots, whether it's a bar, a restaurant, a, a breakfast place, a, a park, a beach or something like that, that people just always like, oh, yeah, when you get to this layover, go to this street at this corner and this they make awesome coffee and if you tell them your flight crew you'll get 20 percent off it's like, wow that's awesome that's cool um usually through word of mouth or, or some apps that we have hmm. i have a two-part question all right <laughs> one given your lifelong passion for aviation it doesn't sound to me like you've ever really struggled with uh with a fear of heights at all correct part two is it common among pilots to have a fear of heights? Probably not common, but like, do you see it? Not common, but not unheard of. My dad okay. actually has a big fear of heights. Really? So yeah, the guy that got me in had a fear of heights. I think I can say like, you know, take me to the Grand Canyon and that you put me up against the edge and look down. It's like, I don't like that feeling. That feels horrible <laughs> right. to me. Right. Um, at least sitting in the cockpit though, it feels so completely different. You have... You know, I, I know in my right hand, I have control of the airplane. I can make it do mm. whatever I want it to, which is kind of a satisfying feeling. And it just, it almost feels like a movie looking out. At least to me, it feels like a movie looking out. It doesn't feel like, oh, wow, I'm six miles in the sky. Mm. That's horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's been only people that I've flown with that have said that they've had fears of heights and the way that they get over it is different reasons. I'm not usually like, well, how do you get over that fear of heights because they seem they seem normal sitting next to me so it's like 
whatever whatever works for them is is positive but the next time the next time i do come across that i'll ask that question of what you know what do they do to to get over it they probably have a similar outlook as me Mm -hmm. or it's just like it feels so completely different than being how high you actually are yeah but yeah no thankfully i don't i don't have the crippling fear having the control in the in the cockpit too makes me think about like I, I have, re- this is not a fear, but it's a sensitivity that I have. Like I do not do well with loud noises, especially when they involve certain frequencies. If I'm the one making the noises, it's a little bit easier to withstand because I have control over it, you know? And so I think that there's a matter of trust that comes into play when it, when it's, um, you know, you're the, you know that you can stop it on command. You know that you can turn down volume or turn up volume or you, you kind of have that control in your hands. And I, I would wonder if I would have a similar fear if I was the one kind of managing the, the vehicle. Yeah. And when I, before I started flying for the airlines, I was instructing and we did a lot of intro flights and there were definitely people that had either a flying apprehension or they're like, Oh, I don't usually like flying, but you know, Mm -hmm. I got this as a birthday present or something like that. And the number of times where you like, we, we have dual control. So I have the same controls and they're linked. The number of times that you're to, to calm somebody down, it's just like, all right, so I'm going to give you control of the airplane, focus out on the horizon and don't make the horizon rise or fall. And if it starts to rise up, you want to pull back on the stick. If it starts to fall down, you want to push forward on the stick, but really light controls. And just the concentration of making the world stop moving Mm. ends everything. It ends nausea. Mm. It ends the fear. And for a lot of people, the fear of flying stems from losing control. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have a lot of people don't have a fear of driving, but once you then hand that control off to somebody else, especially with you know a reinforced door in front of you, you can't even see us while we're sitting up there. That's where the fear stems from. But just handing that control over and being like, all right, you're flying. People instantly gone. Wow. Yeah, it reminds me of um, some research stuff I'd seen into like um, internal versus external loci of control, where I think the study had to do with, they did like a, investigation of people that had PTSD that had served in the military. And they found that despite the fact that like special forces, people see a ton more action, they have less PTSD compared to general army or whatever branch um, counterparts. And they started to think that it was partially due to that locus of control difference. Like if you're in the special ops, you're more likely to be doing unto rather than having things done unto you. Interesting. Versus if you're in like the general army, like you're kind of like driving down the road and things happen to you, you know? And yeah. Obviously there's going to be a huge amount of exceptions to both of those, but I think there's definitely something to that in a flying context. Cause it's so, I don't want to say institutionalized, but there is so much infrastructure as a passenger when you walk in, especially post nine 11, like when you walk in, you're kind of like shepherded through a bunch of different processes and gates and checkpoints and whatever. And then you get in and you sit in an assigned seat and a light goes on and tells you to buckle up. You know, there's all these things that are very necessary for the process to function correctly. But if there's even a glimmer of fear of any aspect of that process, that's what I've found too. It can magnify. Like I'm so much, I flew in a biplane when I was younger and I was so much less afraid in that thing, even though it was made out of wood, it shot flames before it took off and <laughs> it had no roof. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I should be terrified right now. But it was, I had a, uh, 
one of those helmets with the mic in it. Oh yeah. And so even just having that, and I had a um, access to like the rudders and stuff in front of me, and I was told under no circumstances should I touch them, but they are there. <laughs> yeah. And that made it better, you know. It just seeing the thing move when I felt something happen. Yeah. It felt like all right. I could theoretically reach out and touch this. I won't because I don't want to die today. But I could definitely impact this, and yeah. it's amazing the difference that makes. Yeah. So, is there an attrition rate within the pilot community? Like, is there? That's another thing I would sort of, I've always wondered comparing your life as a pilot versus my life as a musician, um, especially the times we've kind of intersected on the road. Like, yeah. are there things that kind of wear people down or make and break people as they're coming up and as they're going through their careers? Yeah, so there's, there's probably a few ways to unpack it. Um, there's a really high attrition rate of getting started, uh, at least, I, so I went to Purdue University for school and I think the retention rate from freshman year to senior year was about 55%. And there's a whole litany of reasons. It's very expensive to get into flying. So that's kind of one big thing. It really is not for everybody. There's For some people it just doesn't click. There was a few students that I taught um, when I was instructor that maybe down the line they may be able to fly themselves, but as a career it probably just wasn't feasible just through abilities and it's not a knock on anybody it just it it is what it is i will never be the same level of guitarist that you are regardless <laughs> of how much i want to practice i it comes so much more naturally to you than it does for me and then the second part once you do get into the career there's a few different avenues that you can go down you could be a, a career instructor you could fly for the airlines you could fly uh, corporate so you're flying um private jets around and there's pluses and minuses to every every section of the industry itself i'd say that the washout rate once you do get to be a professional pilot is probably low because you've invested so much time money blood sweat tears relationships to get to that point that it's not something that you want to give up but transitioning between different parts of the industry is is really common especially um, when you first start to get started, you know, you could start with that airline schedule where it's everything is laid out for you. This is when you're flying. This is when you're not flying. You know, you're doing the same thing day in and day out. And it can be to cool destinations. It could be to less than ideal destinations. Um, whereas flying for corporate is a little bit more up in the air. I don't want to be a bad pun. Uh, it's it's more uh, it's more variable. It's all based off of what an owner likes to do. If you fly for somebody and they're like, "I'm going to Paris tomorrow," you're like, "Shoot, I have to plan all of that. Call ahead, figure out how much gas we're taking." Whereas at the airline, it's all basically produced for us. Where you know, I may know my schedule a month in advance. If somebody says you're going to Paris tomorrow, it's not. Well, I kind of have a birthday party that I was planning on. Hmm. It's like, no, the owner's paying you to go to Paris, and you're going. Um, so it's wow. a just, there's totally, there's so many different aspects to each one that it's, it's tough to nail down exactly what you like. I, I like the airline style flying. It's, it's easy to me. It's what I always thought that I was going to do. And so it's easy to kind of stick with that. Um, but there are a lot of people that bounce around until they find something that really aligns with what their passions are with aviation and with just kind of the right job in general. What are some, are there any core like core traits that would make or break somebody just in kind of piloting writ large, you know, I know there would definitely be differences, but like if I was to say the same thing for like musicians, it would be 
a certain em- embrace of ambiguity, probably. Like, it might be ambiguity, like, creatively. Like, you might just be comfortable digging around in your own brain and writing. You might be comfortable not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, necessarily. Like, no matter which avenue you go into, there's going to be a certain amount of ambiguity. So people that just reject that wholeheartedly tend to not enjoy it. So are there any different parallels like that within aviation that you could see, like if you had a student present with one of these traits or another, you'd be like, oh, they're going to make it in some capacity if they want it, or they're really not going to like this. I mean, a lot of the the personality traits are kind of like the aligns with an alpha personality. You know, you want to be able to have somebody that is kind of calm and cool under pressure or comfortable in different situations and you can tell early on if somebody's like really freaked out by the most basic of things can that be untaught probably but there are you know like a law of primacy is there if they're freaked out by really simple things really early on then that may not lend themselves well to later on if things are really starting to hit the fan um, I think this, the same thing can be said uh, with you. It, the tide in aviation is changing now to where it is starting to be more of a lucrative career from the start. Um, but even up until about 10 years ago, you were really making very, very little money starting off. At the end of your career, it's, it's easy to make really, really good money. But uh, you know, people were starting off making... Eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars a year to fly six, seven, eight legs a day, and going home to a apartment that was with you know six other guys and gals just packed into this really small place. So it was um, at least when I was coming up, there were definitely times where people were like, "You have to really want to do this. You have to love. You have to have a passion for aviation um, if this is really a career that you want to do because it's not." You know, we just finished watching uh, Catch Me If You Can. And it's like, at that time, it was like, oh my God, airline pilot. Just unbelievable. Everybody says, oh, are you a real pilot? <laughs> Up until, you know, 2012, 2014, 2016. Mm. As a, a regional pilot, you weren't, you weren't making a lot of money. You weren't going really cool places. You weren't living a lavish lifestyle. Honestly, you could qualify for food stamps your first few years at, wow. at an airline. Um, so it was really something that you had to have the desire for. Um, and then just going back to the original question too, uh, the traits of actually wanting to go home and study the books, the stuff that's not fun. It's always fun to go flying, but it's not fun to read about aerodynamics or aeromedical factors or whether you have to have a passion for all of it. It can't just be the, well, I showed up to fly. It's like, well, <laughs> you have no idea how any of this works. So you're never going to pass a check ride because you have to have that knowledge behind it too. Mm. I was thinking more too about the analogy between this and, you know, the profession of being a musician. And just as there are ideal audience members or maybe potentially problematic audience members, I have to imagine that there are ideal passengers and problematic passengers. So, Oh yeah. Are there kind of a, (laughs) (laughs) is there a personality type that could make a break a flight? Um, I personally, I'm not a fan and I'd say I'm in the 99th percentile with this. I'm not a fan of people clapping when we land because <laughs> it's like waking up from a procedure and being like, thank you, doctor. You did great. It's like, I, you should have the expectation of landing. 
every time. If you want to come up to the front, I'll flip it though. If you want to come up to the front and you're like, hey, that was a great landing, that's really going to boost my ego and I'll love that. And I think a lot of people actually would, but sitting in the back and just hearing people clap, it's like we're clapping at the end of a movie. Steven Spielberg is not in the back like, goodness, thank you so much for the clapping that you had in Lawrence, Massachusetts on a Tuesday night. Not, no, but uh, some, of the, some of the passengers that um, like the frequent flyers really can actually be super beneficial. Um, every now and then you get a business travel that just likes things their way and it has to be the same way every time. And sure. you know they take the 7 a.m. flight to try to get to New York and they're coming up and they're like, why aren't we leaving? I have an 8.30 meeting. It's like, it's not my fault that you booked a flight an hour and a half before an important meeting. <laughs> There's things that happen. <laughs> like you gotta have more, of, more than one contingency plan because we could take a wrong turn on a taxiway and you're late. Like let's... Yeah. Let's take the, the blame off of, of us here. But it's amazing sometimes when you have people that fly so often, especially for business. Back at the, the last job I had, you could see people that you recognize because they were flying Boston, New York, or New York to Boston on a Friday or on a Monday to get to work and back home at the end of the work week. But those people were awesome because they understood that there was always things that could go wrong. So if you went into the back and said, hey, we've got a three hour delay, it's because of ATC, there's weather between here and there and they're just not letting anybody go. It's out of our control. Those are the people that they're like, yeah, it happens. Mm. It's like, we, we'll get to Boston when we get to Boston, it's out of my control. But uh, yeah, the people that are like, well, why aren't we leaving? Why can't you do it? It's a clear skies here. You said there's weather, but there's no weather. It's like. We are flying 850 miles, and so things might be a little different at the destination. You know, I, I try not to sound sarcastic with it because it is a customer-facing position, just like anybody else sure. in, in customer service. But um, yeah, it's just trying to get a point across to somebody who doesn't want to take what you have for an answer, mm. and repeating it three different ways, the same thing three different ways, and they still don't want to take. It's like. You can only go so far. And the people that are like that, it's like, why couldn't you have taken a bus? <laughs> <laughs> How often are you actually like in the trenches too, like with like directly interacting with these passengers? I remember at one point you mentioned, and you don't have to get into this on mic if it's uncouth, but that you have sometimes been in the position to have to kick people off flights and things like that. Like, is that a common enough thing? Yeah, not not too terribly common. Um, a lot of procedures is is flight attendants are trained with like de-escalation. So if there is an incident or somebody that's getting riled up or something, they are trained in that scenario. Uh, especially if we're at the uh, still sitting at the gate with with our the main the main door open. There's people at each airport that are also trained with with de-escalation. Mm and things like that too. So there's policies and procedures in place and a kind of an order of operations of how things go. Um, I guess I'll, I can tell a story of, you know, it's not very frequent, but um, I had a flight in 2019 from Raleigh to, to New York and we were the only flight that hadn't canceled. We were full with all of our passengers plus passengers from other flights that were canceled that were trying desperately to get on but we legitimately had like a four hour delay. It was like, we were supposed to be back at six and we were even thinking that we were going to start the flight until like eight. And, uh, I went up to the gate agent and asked how things were going and asked if they needed anything. I went back down to the airplane to tell them that I was going to go back up just to, you know, use the, use the restroom and be back. 
And by the time I went from the gate back to the airplane and then back up, there was a woman in the gate agent's face you know, screaming and demanding to know their badge number and their name. And I was like, what happened in the last literally 45 seconds? <laughs> and so what the problem was is we had something called an edict, which is EDCT, estimated departure clearance time. And that's what's given when there's a bunch of weather. And so, uh, you know, like in New Jersey and California, there's highways that have like stoplights and you like go up to the stoplight and when you're allowed to get on the highway, it turns green and you're just supposed to floor it and trust <laughs> that there's a spot. Yeah. Mm. That's basically what happens when there's a lot of weather, except mm. they close all the lanes but one. So there's a huge line trying to get onto the highway. And that, that's kind of how I explain it. It's like, instead of us joining a traffic jam, they just have us wait at the gate. Mm. And then when it's our turn, we go to the stoplight, wait for the green light. And when we get the green light, then we can go. Okay. And the, the, the customers that were waiting to get on the airplane didn't trust that the gate agent was telling them the information. And so mm. the best way to do that was to have me in full uniform. I took the mic, gave them exactly the same information and the crowd completely calmed down. And so that's where it, it's beneficial for somebody like myself to stand in front of people and give them information, even if I'm regurgitating the same information. Mm. If Matt, if you knew everything that there was to know about aviation and you stood up as a passenger, like, hey, you know, if there's an edict and it's got three hours, we'll be out. It's like a, a stoplight letting you on the road. They'd be like, what? Yeah. And then I could say the exact same thing. They're like, oh my God, thank God the pilot told us. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing what a uniform does. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that's kind of the part of the job that I, I don't mind sometimes because it de-escalated things. It gave people the information that they were looking for and it makes you feel good at the end of the day that at least you kind of solved the situation. But those are few and far between. That's why I have a story that I even remember if it was a day in, day out, it's be like, Unfortunately, yeah, we do this every day, but mm -hmm. I would love to see if, um, just to run an experiment someday if, to see the power of that uniform truly, like if you got on to fly the plane in like a tank top and a fedora and just see if, see what the difference was, <laughs> see how unsettled <laughs> the passengers were. Yeah, flip flops <laughs> there too. And a... <laughs> I have another two parter question. Yeah. Okay. So part one. You had asked your guest in the first episode of your podcast whether he had any superstitions or any, you know, routines or rituals that he did on, on, a, on the leg home. Yep. Do you have any of those? Yeah. 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 So my superstition starts from the time I get to the airport. The second that I lock my car, I have to put my keys in my bag and forget that they're there until I get back to my car. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I find myself, like, my keys are in my pocket, I'm like, I'm, something's going to go wrong. Because it's like the anticipation is, of going home is what yeah. screws it up. And I don't yeah. know, you know, I've heard of people that have like lucky go home socks. Mm -hmm. You know, every, mm -hmm. every day that it's their go home day, they always wear the same pair of socks mm -hmm. or, you know, underwear or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, I, that's the one that I went to. I didn't want to go too crazy where it's like I always have to have my keys in my bag with the same pair of socks. I have to brush my teeth in a specific order, put on my glasses, take them off, put them back on again, and that's my go-home day. It's like I could easily go down a rabbit hole here where it's like, why are you late for the van? Well, it's like, well, let me tell you what I had to do to make sure we get home because <laughs> I'd be the person that would do that. So. 
<laughs> so is there any set of circumstances based on superstition that would cause you to, to back out of a flight? Oh, based off of superstition? No. I, we could get I'd imagine into, it would be very extreme. Yeah, it, it, it really would. I mean, I've had times where I really don't want to take a flight um, yeah. for various different reasons. I mean, it's so much easier to say, well, if I didn't do this one, I could be home like six hours earlier or a day earlier. But yeah, yeah it comes with a job. Again, going back to a few questions ago, if you don't understand what you're signing up for, it really could be a slap in the face when you first get started on missing Christmas for the first time or, you know, not being able to get home when you say you're supposed to, or, oh, you know, you know I'll be home by 10. And then somehow you're not home for three days. So yeah, no, I've, I've never refused a flight based on, I actually never have refused a flight, uh, period oh, to wow. this point. Yeah. Good for you. I'm going to add a third part to this. Yeah. <laughs> How seriously would you take a reported premonition from a passenger or from someone involved in the flight and they say this one's no good it's going to go down uh, that's a that's a really good question a hypothetical i haven't actually gone through i think there's a uh, there's like an ad on tv right now where it's like oh good you're the only person that showed up the the psychic convention all decided to cancel <laughs> and take a different day <laughs> and the guy's like what <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be a case-by-case case basis. If somebody was, like, so unbelievably adamant, that would be in the back of my mind, I'm sure, for the entirety of the flight. Again, mm -hmm. it's one of those things where it's like, I'm in control of my own destiny. Now, if somebody flipped it and kind of had a threat, now that's a totally different ball game where they're like, this well, flight sure. will yeah. not go. And it's yeah. like, mm. <laughs> But I'm talking, like, have you seen the episode of The Twilight Zone where the woman thinks that, like, she's going to die in a, a specific room number? And then she wakes up and the room number happens to be the number on the plane. Oh, yes. Yeah. So like if it was that, like that situation, like would you listen to that woman and take that seriously? I, you know, I, I always have to put on the face when when wearing the uniform. I'd probably mm -hmm. try to understand the, the superstitions and that you don't want to go. And if, if you want to take another flight, that's your prerogative. Um, I would do my best just to kind of block it out of my memory, just not to yeah. let that fester and just be like, well, maybe she was right. No. Maybe? No. <laughs> God, that would ruin me as a passenger or as a pilot. That would yeah. that would be so difficult to compartmentalize some of those things. <laughs> yeah, I, I think as a passenger, it might, it might affect me more when you're just sitting over and that person's like sitting there, you know, with the... Yeah, rosary, and they're kind of sitting there praying, and you're like, yeah. "What do mm. they know that I don't?" Yeah, <laughs> but out of sight, out of mind. Once you're once you're up front, mm. what do you think the role of the superstitions are, though, for you? Like, just as a practitioner in this case, because I think it would be very different. Again, kind of back to the loci of control thing. Like, as a passenger, if you have like your lucky like flying pants, versus you having like the routine with your keys. I think you could argue that that serves an actual purpose. Like if for no other reason than the fact that it kind of grounds you in a very yeah. important way before you walk in. Like for me, I have a weirdly similar one where if I'm going on stage, I always take all of the shit out of my pockets, but specifically the phone. Yeah. I have never gone on stage with my phone and I always put it like face down in my case on silent, lock the case, put it away. Yeah. And the only way that that thing is on stage with me is if it's in the case because I'm afraid I'm going to get robbed wherever I am. Mm -hmm. But it's yeah. in the case, upside down, silent, in the back of the stage, behind sh Like, I just have to be so removed from 
anything that could possibly. So like if somebody calls me and said like your house exploded, you need to come back now and figure out where your possessions are. Like I can't possibly know yeah. until I walk off. It's the only way I can like get into that headspace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I've mm-hmm. done gigs where I'm not in that headspace and it's a freaking disaster. Yeah. So like I think you can make a case for the importance of superstitions when you're in that role where you have to just walk into a situation that is a little bit ambiguous and you have mm-hmm. to kind of turn it on. Yeah. Well, I would add two things to that. One, there being a certain number of steps before you do a certain activity that you are supposed to be a professional at, like the repetition of ritual kind of prepares you for the task because like you, it sounds simple, but just doing a certain number of things leading up to a bigger thing. Yeah. That's huge. The other thing I would add is I feel the same way about wearing a uniform, which I don't really do anymore, but there was probably a year or two where I had a a uniform that I would wear when I played gigs and it wasn't anything like super official, but I had the ritual of changing my shirt before getting on stage. And then I know like this, these are my performance clothes. They could have been any clothes. But the act of getting dressed before doing a thing put me in the role of doing that thing. And especially being, you know, in the DIY scene and often wearing a lot of different hats um, and having a lot of different responsibilities when it came to the shows that I was a part of, it was always beneficial to go like, okay, I'm playing a lot of different roles right now, but right now I'm playing the performer role and I'm showing that by putting on my performer shirt. It's not really a superstitious thing, but... I know that once I do this set of activities, it means that I'm preparing for a specific task that I want to focus on and my head has to be in it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it comes back to the control thing, Matt, like you said, putting the keys in the the pocket or putting that uniform on. It's like, it's setting the stage in your head uh, even two hours before I'm even supposed to be there. It's like going out to, you know, perform the duties that I'm supposed to. Um, and one of the other questions we asked in, in the podcast too, it's like, how do you, how do you build your nest, set up your nest in the cockpit when you get there and you put your things down? It's the same thing. Once you get into that ritual of, you know, for me, it's putting my overnight bag in and then putting the, the small bag next to my seat and then moving the seat back and getting into it, pulling the iPad out, putting it up, put, getting my headset out, putting that on, just getting into that routine. And when you start screwing things up, and doing things in a different order, or you get distracted by something like that. It's like, now why, now why am I not doing as well as I normally do? Like, why, this is a simple task that I'm supposed to do just to basically get the airplane turned on every time we sit down. But why am I missing these steps? And it's because things have changed from that normal routine. And if you can put your phone face down in the box backstage where it's going to be, it's like, I've set the thing where I've always done it, where things have always been successful and you are automatically flip that switch in your brain. Like, okay, that, that checkbox is done. I can have a successful show now. Yeah. It's almost like to the extent that this can go to plan. Yeah. It's, it's starting that way. Like it's not going to, there is no plan once I pass this threshold, but for right now there is, and it's going according to that. And that's, that's pretty big. And I mean, one thing that reminded me too, um, of like my pre-show ritual was like the kind of cockpit nest idea where it's not only an emotional comfort thing, but some of it, like the pre-show situation can be pretty procedural too, especially on the road where like you're not all, it's weird. You have like a ton of time, but you kind of have no time 
or you have like a ton of time but no bandwidth. Like there's always some trade off. And so there's I've noticed a lot of value in um having your kind of pre-show procedure pretty rote by the time you actually have to go out and execute it. And having those weird little ticks, like the phone is a big one. I do the same thing as Joel with like there my gig clothes go on kind of when I'll tune, how often I'll tune, that type of stuff. But aside from comforting me, no matter what situation I'm in, there's also an element of like, it helps me stay in that kind of muscle memory, automatic part of my brain. Cause I've done this entire thing a million times. So as long as I'm just like walking through these steps, I'm not going to miss any steps because I don't know what they are. I just know that I, I shut my brain off. I do all this stuff and then I come out and I'm ready to do it. So is there an element of that at all for you guys with the amount of like pre-flight checks and, you know, just different things that you have to run and that you really can't screw up? Is there any value in like the kind of procedural strength that having some of these like little rituals gives you? Or is it just, are those things separate enough because you have checklists and things? Checklists basically, I think probably are derived from having that similar pattern and doing everything's the same way every single time. Uh, we're kind of trained in doing that too. We have flows that we do that are backed up by a checklist. So if you can do everything in the same order every single time, it just becomes that rote memory and you're just kind of doing it without even really thinking about doing it. And it all starts, at least for me, it all starts from just kind of sitting down and doing the same routine on the non-taught things that you're supposed to do. Adjusting the seat, taking the iPad out, taking my headset out, to where I've now built myself into a comfortable position that I know I'm always in. But you know, when you're sitting in that uncomfortable position where it's like, Oh, my headset's not out. Oh, my iPad's not out. Now why am I doing this? Or why I'm doing this out of order. It's almost like you have to completely stop with what you're doing. Go back all the way to the beginning to just get yeah. yourself back in that headspace of, you know, if there's something that I missed on a flow that I had to do right when I sat down, Instead of just doing that, just do everything again. What did you know? What else did I forget? Just because I'm out of my element in that scenario, just knock everything out, even if it seems redundant. And doing the same thing for a second time, knock that all out. Again, there's you know more of a, a safety aspect when it comes to the job too. In that case, making sure that everything is done correctly, and that's why there are checklists to further back you up. But it all starts from, at least for me, doing things the same way every single time, because that's when the anomalies will stick out to you. It's like, That's different. Mm-hmm. That was not like that the last time I did that. Yeah. And kind of loosely on the subject then of what happens um, in the cockpit, especially pre-flight, are there any slang terms very specific to the pilot <laughs> community that are just worth, like we're, Joel and I are both huge fans of like slang and puns and things like that. And I've always been curious, <laughs> especially given the voice. Like yeah. There must be things yeah. you guys say that no one else says. Um, let's see. I, Do you ever call a plane a bird? Yeah, bird. That's, yep. All right, all right. There's one. That's a, you know, that's a pretty sweet bird over there. Um, yeah. We could give you some nouns. Or did you know some parts of the plane that we know and see if there's like a, yeah. we could do a translation. Oh, oh I, uh, now that you said that, like the, uh, the engines could be like cans. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Awesome. All right. Uh, that's cool. Because that's what we would call headphones too. Do you guys have that yeah. one too? Oh, no, that's, that's different for me. Yeah, that's a musician one. It's like, oh, I put on cans. Or like, you got any cans lying around? How about a slang term for a problematic passenger? Like uh, a, a hairy, maybe? Sometimes we call them a mat. 
Oh, oh <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, if I'm if I'm being totally transparent, it's probably not a a PG word. Yeah. For better or for worse, the word Karen kind of has made its way into the culture. But I think that's just a universal term, not really exclusive to uh, to to aviation. Speaking of Karens, actually, so Uh-oh. have you seen any difference in the way that different generations fly? Oh, good question. Like, I've been really curious about how, like, I don't know, you see, like, Gen Z, for example, does most things differently than other generations. Like, it's just to be coming of age right along, like, a cultural or technological fault line. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just so fundamentally different from how, like, a, say, a boomer, for example, would approach the world or some Gen X people, even some millennials. Like, is there a difference either in the way that, you see people perceiving air travel as a whole or or just the way that they act based on those generational lines. Yeah. And I don't, obviously everything I can say is a generalization and there's exceptions to every rule when it comes to that. Um, I think older generations still have a little bit more of a respect Mm -hmm. of air travel. A lot of times when you see kids that are flying, at least it, Millennials are now really Gen Z because that's 96 and later. But uh, the Gen Z that we see is, you know, grew up with more money. So may just kind of see it as a, yeah, we're just, we're flying because mm. we can, we can fly. Mm. Um, older generations are where you kind of get the people who are like, I've never flown before. So they're, you know, dressed a little bit more nice, nicely. They're talking to the flight attendants. Oh, this is my seat. Where, am I, where you know, where am I supposed to sit? Where, where do I put my bags? Whereas, you know, younger, younger generations that haven't flown before are usually just kind of doing things their way until they're told, Hey, you can't do it. So I, nobody told me that. Mm. Okay. Well, you can't do that. Well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> you know, my bag can't fit in the overhead now. I was like, well, we're going to have to check it. Well, but I was on the airplane first. It's kind of a little bit more argumentative. Again, mm-hmm. totally a generalized statement that's just kind of follows more trends than, than not. Yeah. Again, not to pick on Gen Z, the number of times that I've seen people like doing a TikTok dance in an airport just in like the last two years, I'm like, am I going to be in the background of something just randomly like walking by? It's like, oh, that's me. It's, it's so interesting. It's like, yeah. in sometimes it's just off to the side and that doesn't matter. But a handful of times where people are like in the middle of a common thoroughfare or whatever it's called, mm. shooting a video, it's like, are you joking? <laughs> so along with this question, is there any golden age thinking for you as in an idealized time or maybe decade, some era when you would have loved to have been a pilot? Um, I, I think each generation probably has has its its pluses. I think it really it probably would have been fun to fly during the 90s and late 80s. You know, it was just huge airplanes on really short routes when Mm. flying was a little bit more of a a privilege, you know, not exclusive of of anybody uh, in today's day and age, but it was just like, you know, people dressed up. There was some really, really nice food that was served on every single flight. So Mm. people were willing to pay that extra dollar to get something that was really nice. I think that probably would have been really fun flying just some huge airplane all over the country, all over the world, because it's that's that's different now. But 
I, I really love the fact that I'm flying in today's environment because it's the safest that aviation has ever been. Mm. Um, regulations are usually unfortunately made because that there was an issue in the past and right. every issue that has led up to this point has made aviation safer mm. as unfortunate as that is. Um, so I'd go to work very, very, very confident in the safety of everything that's involved mm-hmm. right now. So I love flying now. It would have been super cool to experience that, you know, fly the Concorde, I think would have been really, really neat to, just to experience. Ask you, would you fly the Concorde? Uh, that, that'd be really cool. It, actually, American and United both uh, placed orders with a company called Boom, which is trying to revitalize that concept of, of flying above the speed of sound, getting from uh, New York to London three hours. Jeez. It'd be nice to see come back. It would totally change international travel, but I mean, we'll see how that is. But it would, it would have been super cool to be able to experience like the heyday of, wow, we're flying at twice the speed of sound. Good God. Mm. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with the Konkordsky at all? No. The Konkordsky? I don't think so. It's the Russian response to the Concorde? <laughs> yeah. Or Soviet response? Yeah. <laughs> Things phenomenal. That's my favorite plane. <laughs> well, it's actually it's my second favorite next to, I don't know if you'd consider it a plane, but you know that very early airplane that looked like uh, two hi-hats? Yeah, that bounced <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What is that thing called? I, I don't remember what it's called, but that's just uh, an unbelievable <laughs> concept that somebody came up with and decided to bring to fruition and was like, guys, watch this. And imagine, think about the poor soul having to pilot that thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's hopping all over the place and it's smashing into itself. Like, I love, like, a lot of the early planes. You can see the logic. I mean, it's they work or they don't work, but you can at least see, like, all right, they looked at a bird. And they said, this is flying, so here's something that sort of resembles a bird. It will also fly. Like, you can see how they get there. That thing, though, is just slamming into itself and bouncing up and down. Like, at what point does it take off, <laughs> and how would it do that? So I have a question that would certainly vary pilot to pilot, person to person. But, for example, you know, the first thing that I quote-unquote drove might have been like a bumper car, and then like a go-kart, and then... You know, my first car, which was a sedan, and then a station wagon, and an SUV. And I look at an 18-wheeler, and I'm like, nope, it's never going to happen. And so, like, you start with kind of your training wheels on, and you scale up and scale up. And uh, it sounds like, to me, like your dream would have been to fly those big planes in the 80s and 90s. Do you find that it varies person to person, like, whether they just want to, like, fly a smaller single-engine plane, and they go, like, I'm never going to do a big commercial liner or something like that. So like for you, that, that dream is for it to scale bigger, but do you find in other people in your profession that they like to just keep it small and they're kind of like, no way could I ever handle that? Yeah, it definitely does vary from, from person to person. Um, people like to call it shiny jet syndrome, whether it's the newest airplane, the biggest airplane, the fastest airplane, whatever mm-hmm. it is, people have kind of their niche. For yeah. me, I, I would love to fly something big. That sounds super cool. The job that I have right now doesn't really have... Uh, anything bigger than what I fly right now. And yeah. I don't want to change the position that I'm in right. to just kind of chase the dream. Cause that seems silly to me, but I, I know people that are just looking to find the, the biggest airplane that they can fly and right off to the sunset and that, which sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Do planes feel different as a pilot too? And that like this, does the size become apparent to you as you're kind of driving it? Yeah, actually the, uh, 
So I just did uh, LA for the first time, which is coast to coast. We were basically at the maximum takeoff weight when we left Boston. Um, and the way that that airplane handles compared to just doing half an airplane full of people going to New York with a tenth the amount of gas, mm. it goes from feeling like a Escalade driving around to, oh, we're back to driving <laughs> the Civic that I grew up driving. Mm. And what's the coolest thing or craziest thing you've ever seen in midair? Um, I think confidently I can say we were flying to, I think it was Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, there was crossing traffic that was going to cross a thousand feet above us, which is common for altitude separation. Um, and it was a B2, like the flying wing. Oh, wow. And uh, we couldn't find it to save our lives because it just got such a low profile until it was probably a mile or two away. And it was just like this stealth, otherworldly looking airplane that flew directly over us. You couldn't hear it. The second that it was, you know, on the opposite side of us, we lost sight. Passengers that saw it probably would have just had the luck of the draw of looking up from their book, phone, tablet, seat back entertainment to look over and be like, oh my God, that's super cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's just one of the coolest looking planes I think ever to exist. Yeah. As, just as a non-pilot, like looking at those things, it's just like, yeah, that, that uh, it just looks sci-fi. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't think of another way to describe it, but yeah, those are awesome. It looks like it shouldn't be a thing. <laughs> but it is. <laughs> it makes you understand the UFO sightings a little bit when you look at something like that. And like, if this thing came over me, especially at night, I would absolutely struggle to believe that this was earthly. Yeah, I actually, I, there was one time where I thought we saw a UFO because the air traffic controller told us to look for something because mm-hmm. apparently everybody was reporting it, and we actually ended up seeing. SpaceX released the Starlink satellites, but they were so close together that they looked like this white pill shaped (laughs) thing. And, uh, for the better part of an hour, I was like, Oh my God, I legitimately saw a UFO. Cause it was unbelievably fast. Like it went from kind of above us to over the horizon over the course of that time. And it wasn't until we got on the ground where there was news articles of, oh, people reported this weird sighting and it turned out to be Tesla or SpaceX launching the Starlink. And I was like disappointed and happy at the same time that I wasn't <laughs> going crazy. But um, it was just such a, a unique experience to see like legitimately what is that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the risk of going too far into Joe Rogan territory, like how common is that feeling like how are things like ufo sightings treated within your community is it something that happens or is it something that's taken seriously or is it thrown away i really don't ask anybody about that at least previously it was somewhat taboo from reporting things you know now with the pentagon having its own ufo wing it's probably less uh now and they've released some of those videos of fighter pilots seeing kind of the weird objects that they claim they have no idea what they are. Mm. Um, I've never legitimately can confidently say I've never seen anything. And uh, I guess the only thing I've, you know, you see on a semi-consistent basis, if you're flying like late at night 
and you adjust your eyes towards the sky, you can see satellites on a relatively uh, consistent basis, which is always cool to look up and be like, that star is moving, moving, not just uh, making this up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just it really isn't talked about all that much, uh, pilot mm -hmm. to pilot. Probably that's comforting, honestly, to know that it's not like a whole subculture that is going on. So I guess just like uh, unless you have anything you want to jump in with, Rob, what's something about being a pilot that you wish you could communicate properly to quote unquote civilians? Yeah. Um, the thing that I like the most is if there's like a foggy morning leaving the airport, there's always sun on top. So at least in my job, there's no such thing as a rainy day because there's mm -hmm. sunshine anywhere you're going to fly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But the feeling of blasting through the top of the cloud deck into the sunshine where you can look down and you can see the, the rainbow halo around the airplane getting smaller and smaller as you climb up. Just that brief moment of cloud surfing from our point of view is something that I wish everybody would have the opportunity of seeing mm. in real life. Uh, videos would never do it justice. We're not really allowed to record up in the flight deck, but mm. it's unbelievable. If you ever you know, have a foggy morning where you're leaving, don't look at your phone until you're above the clouds and just seeing that moment of clouds going back like it's cotton candy. Truly, it's the most you know freeing feeling where you're what slipping the bounds of earth or whatever the the phrase is. It's just it's unbelievable to see, and that's something I legitimately never never get sick of of seeing. Mm. And actually, I got one last one. Um, so this is partially just because I'm kind of studying this type of stuff right now. But are there any like either within the passenger community that you service or within the pilot community or kind of, again, like the flight crew in general community. Yeah. Are there any like norms or kind of ethical systems or just flat out no-nos that exist that might not be super common knowledge? I think the biggest thing is probably medical things. A lot more things are disqualifying than I think the, the community or non-flying community would realize. And then the flip side too, a lot of times people are like, oh, you wear glasses, you're supposed to have perfect vision. It's just, it's supposed to be corrected to 2020. Um, but some disqualifying things like kidney stones, you cannot have a, a medical certificate if you have kidney stones and it's difficult to be able to get that back. If, if you've ever had kidney stones or? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's wow. a history of kidney stones is uh, perceived as a red, red flag um, right now. Why? You know, I can't speak for the medical community when it comes to this, but uh, the best educated guess that I could see is a kidney stone could be so debilitating that if something like that were to happen while you were flying, that makes um, sense. it distracts you from being able to do, obviously, thankfully, I've never had one, but um, from the sounds of it, if it requires an ambulance to come to your house, you know, that probably limits you from being able to do the duties that you're supposed to do on, sure. on a yeah. flight deck. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing that's kind of taboo no-no that people wouldn't know about. Obviously, there's mm -hmm. the, um, you know, alcohol procedures of when we can and cannot drink. Mm -hmm. um, and at least for us, it's eight hours before we're um, supposed to show up is when you have to cut it off. But there's mm -hmm. other limits. It's not like you can go crazy until eight hours and be like, well, I'm good. I stopped eight hours ago. It's like, but you chugged a half a fifth of, 
of vodka eight <laughs> hours ago. It's not going to go that through. That would be a great time to try out accents on the PA, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I'm not looking to put the job in jeopardy for <laughs> for, for an, an accent. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's uh, various things, but where everything, like I said, everything is designed to keep us safe, is designed to keep you safe. And mm-hmm. most likely that rule has come from somebody screwing up in the past and mm. kind of nip it in the bud and make it a regulation that everybody follows. Well, that's good to know. That's comforting as a passenger to know that the, <laughs> at least the kinds of things are given thought, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, tell us a little bit about the podcast. And uh, before you do, I want to shout out your co-host for his... Um, his breakfast food destinations trick. Yeah. Which I'm yeah. not going to say what it is because oh, people yeah. should go listen. Yeah. I hope I'm you, not yeah, going to tell you it. where it's it is. It's a good either. trick. Yeah. It's phenomenal. It's a good I trick. hope you do. I, it was a, uh, it was a hilarious thing to be on the receiving end of. And our, our <laughs> breakfast was phenomenal that morning. Good. Um, so yeah, I really hope you go, go listen to it. We're kind of in the uh, beginning of stages uh, finished recording the second episode yesterday. So with any luck, you'll be able to hear that uh, by the end of the week. It's called The Commuter Clause. If you go on Instagram, that's where our social is right now, at The Commuter Clause. Um, and there's a uh, link in the bio for both um, Spotify and Apple. Mm. Um, and just a little backstory with that. The Commuter Clause is uh, something in aviation, part of a contract that we all have the, one of the cool things about aviation is that we can technically live anywhere that we want to, regardless of where we're based. But uh, if you do not live in base, so I live in Boston, so I'm not a quote unquote commuter. But if you are a commuter, there's something in the contract called the commuter clause that kind of spells out what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do when it comes to commuting to work, whether that's you have to give yourself two flights before your scheduled um, report time, whether that's where the airline will actually buy you a ticket on their airline to get you to work. So that's where kind of that uh, that little play on words uh, came from. And uh, our mission is to be able to connect the flying community and even non-flying community with what happens behind closed doors Mm. um, on the flight deck. A lot of times when you sit down, it's with somebody that you've either never seen before, never flown before, or flown infrequently with. So it's kind of the conversation that we have in the flight deck uh, that you don't necessarily always get to hear. Um, And we want to share that with everybody where People who are apprehensive about flying can hear about what our lives kind of entail. And we try to break down the podcast into things about how they got into aviation, uh, things that they in, um, run into on the job, kind of the life and relationships that come with it. And then we have some fun questions like uh, you both alluded to that uh, hopefully you'll give it a listen. Hopefully it'll give you an idea of what um, a day in the life of uh, either a pilot or beyond everything in aviation is about. So yeah, we hope you give it a listen. Um, There's not too many podcasts out there that really try to reach out to the general audience. Uh, A lot of them are just kind of pilot to pilot or within the aviation community. And we want to be able to push those boundaries to to make it more accessible to more people. Mm. It's weird that there's such a dearth of podcast in that kind of niche too because i had never even thought about it until you announced that you guys were starting this and 
I was like, yeah, this is one of the few industries that in today's pretty uh, transparent world, like there isn't anything like this. So it, it's really cool that you're doing it. And yes, listener, it is very well done. And we will link everything in the show notes. Yeah. So we highly advise it. that you go listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, do you guys have anything else? Uh, true or false, turbulence isn't that big of a threat. Completely true. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's. Uh, do do either of you guys watch uh, Stranger Things? I've seen a few episodes. I haven't but seen no, it. not really. Okay, so this doesn't this doesn't screw anything up. Okay. but it's not a spoiler if you're still watching season four. Uh, there is a scene at uh, halfway through season four of Stranger Things where the engine quits on an airplane, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're in a ninety degree nosedive. Yeah, after they hit turbulence. And it does nothing to dispel people's fears about flying. Yeah. The airplane will not fall out of the sky if it hits turbulence. Especially will not fall out of the sky if an engine quits. And it's like things like that in pop culture where it's like, <laughs> there's probably somebody who's never had that fear. And now all of a sudden it's like, if the engine stops, we're just going to fall out of the sky. <laughs> so... Yeah, no. Oh, I got one more then in that vein. Yeah. Is there a Jaws equivalent for you guys? A Jaws equivalent? <laughs> like, is there a movie that, like, like how when Jaws came out, people <laughs> pretty much stayed out of the ocean that summer? Um, is there an aviation movie that you. Oh, you mean a movie? Be like, I thought you meant, is there something in the sky that you fear? Like, answer both, please. I thought the same thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Jaws in aviation, I, and it, like, I don't know, a hurricane maybe, yeah. like a Category 5 hurricane. It's like, let's steer clear of that. Mm. But we can see that coming. <laughs> Jaws, it was just kind of like, you're done. But you wouldn't um, be afraid of, say, a Sharknado. No, no, we just <laughs> you know, probably just fly around it. Yeah, too low to, to the ground anyway. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think in, in uh, movie aspect, what Flight with Denzel Washington Mm-hmm. is an entertaining watch for sure but it i mean how many different things did he do wrong I, I think he was you know snorting things before he flew and then drinking to counter the effects and mm-hmm. then rolled an airplane through a storm to get through it after exceeding limitations and not following anything that's designed to keep him safe it's like could you have thrown together any worse combination to make us just seem like total <laughs> jerks? I, you yeah. know, there's no PG way to say it. At least in my mind, I, you know, you could throw in like snakes on a plane or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, flight is probably my answer. Are you a fan of Airplane? I love it. The movie? Absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah. How many things does it get right, if any? Like, are there any, like, jokes in that you'd be like, oh, yeah? I mean, truthfully, there's still a lot of, like, pop culture references when we're flying. Mm. It's like, when we get our ATC clearance, it's like, hey, what's my clearance, clearance? (laughs) Or what's my clearance, clearance? (laughs) It's like, I love that that still has a, uh, you know, a tie into the industry. I don't know how many years later. Yeah, that was, like, early 70s, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's been a while. That was a great movie. Do you guys think we got it? I think so. I'm definitely running out of questions. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really nice to meet you. Yeah, you as well. Thank you so much for having me. 